Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, well, we're really fudging this date on this one because today, when you're listening to this, is December 19th, but the story we're talking about is from Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1913, at the Italian Hall in Calumet, Michigan. Chaos erupted when someone yelled fire during a crowded holiday party. In the ensuing stampede, some 73 people, 59 of them children, died. Calumet was a company town, a mining town, and the Italian Hall disaster quickly entered the lore of labor history in this country as the circumstances surrounding the tragedy were tied up in labor disputes, strikes, and the exploitation of mostly immigrant workers in Michigan's copper country. So, here to discuss the Italian Hall disaster of 1913 are, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And our guest for this episode is Eric Loomis, labor historian, associate professor of history at the University of Rhode Island. And his most recent book is A History of America in Ten Strikes. Eric, I'm a big fan of your work. We've been trying to find an excuse to have you on the show. So thank you for doing this. Well, thank you all for having me. Yeah. So I learned about this, as I think a lot of people did, maybe because there's a Woody Guthrie song that basically recounts this beat by beat. And Kelly and Nikki will tell you that if Woody Guthrie wrote a song about it, eventually I will find a reason to do it on this show. Um, but, We're just going through the whole back catalog. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but, but you know, I think bringing up that song, and listeners, we'll play, we'll play you that song in entirety at the end of this episode. Um, but I think bringing up that song is interesting because when you hear, you know, oh, there's a song and it's been played over the generations, part of your brain goes, well, you know, maybe this has turned into myth, you know, and when someone writes a song about it and the story gets passed down, where does does a gap between what happened and the story that's told emerge? So, Eric, I'm curious, you know, what is your sense of how much we know about this incident and how much has become mythologized and if there is a gap in there? Yeah, I mean... A lot of the facts are fairly straightforward, uh, as you presented at the start, uh, but there is some mythology as well that, uh, you know, that Woody Guthrie uh, perhaps uh, created or or expanded upon. You know, I mean, th- these are workers that are being, you know, pr- pretty brutalized. Um, this was an isolated area, um, way, way, way up in northern Michigan. Um, and, you know, it was a, a situation where workers are working, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. They're being charged for the equipment that they uh, need to stay alive, uh, you know, underground. Um, it's very unsafe working conditions. And, you know, they are uh, unionizing, right? Um, and so they form a union 
with the Western Federation of Miners. And this is a very interesting union um, in that it was really a union of hard rock miners in the American West, uh, working in gold and silver and copper uh, and the other big uh, minerals of the West and often organizing in the most brutal conditions. Um, And in fact, uh, shortly before this in 1905, the Western Federation of Miners dominated at this point by people who had been so brutalized that they don't really think that capitalism uh, is the answer in America um, are central to forming the industrial workers of the world. Um, so, you know, they had, they had, a, you know, engaged in that. Um, so they're organizing these workers. There's this big party that they hold uh, to kind of like get the worker spirits up as they go on strike. Somebody yells fire, supposedly there's a big rush to the door. Uh, and again, 73 people die. Now, Woody Guthrie writes a song in 1941. So it's 28 years later. Uh, and he writes it after reading a book uh, the year before. Guthrie was an amazing songwriter, as we all know, uh, and really was touched by the stories uh, of kind of suffering workers struggling against a system of capitalism. And so he wrote a number of labor ballads, um, including the Ludlow Massacre, um, which is about another um, labor disaster at this time where company thugs had uh, massacred workers. The song is mostly just kind of laying it out. The one thing that Guthrie adds to it that may not be true is the sort of the claim that the uh, that the company thugs were blocking the doors from people getting out. That's probably not true. We don't really know if it is a company thug who yells fire. It may well be. A lot of people claimed uh, that it was, but we don't actually know. Um, and so Guthrie kind of expands on that, makes it a little bit more mythological. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, even if you take that out, the actions of the company in this entire strike, including the aftermath, Uh, of the fire is so reprehensible that you hardly need to expand upon the myth to realize you're dealing with a pretty evil corporation here. And you can see why this has such a mythological hold as well, because you can't imagine a more serene, warm setting than this big, bustling party on Christmas Eve full of Italian immigrants and immigrants from other parts of the world who are all gathered together to celebrate that this is a room full of children. And it's in this very lean time because folks are on strike. Um, And it has this kind of demented Christmas carol feel to it, right? Because just like, um, you know, Bob Cratchit was a victim of the capitalist system in uh, in that story. Here you have the same thing, except there is no there is no melting of hearts. There is no Christmas Day miracle. It's just this horrific tragedy. I, I think this tragedy is just compounded because the majority of the victims are children. The youngest is yeah. two years old. And, and, you know, not to say that this would not be a just as devastating if it happened any other time of the year. But so much of Christmas is centered around children. And so the idea that the majority of these victims are small people is just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I think it's a story that, that works in part because it's it's a story of just a, an unregulated, uh, uncaring capitalism, just, mm. you know, wiping out a whole generation of children in this town. And, and look, it wasn't the first time that children had been victimized in his strike. Uh, back in September, deputy policeman shot a 14-year-old girl in the back of the head. Uh, mm-hmm. She did survive, barely. 
um, and I'm sure dealt with these problems for her whole life. And so, you know, the attacks on children were hardly unknown. Um, and, you know, this horrible incident happens and it gets national attention. And the response of the company is actually uh, just to sort of double down on the oppression. Um, the mm. head of the WFM, Charles Moyer, publicizes the event and blames the companies. And the next day they shoot him. So mm. and he, he survives um, that as well. But, uh, you know, he is photographed There's a photograph of Moyer in the hospital holding his chest after he's been shot. So it's mm. not as if the company was like, oh, we better back off because 59 you know, yeah. children died. No, they, they just doubled down on it. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the violence and brutality all around, I think, is the thing that really mm. resonates. Um, one, one thing about the Guthrie sign I think is worth pointing out, Nikki, you sort of hinted at it just because. It ha- obviously it takes place on Christmas Eve. It has this sort of Christmas feel. The way that Guthrie writes the song, it starts with "Take a trip with me to 1913," and it's sort of like he's holding the hand of the person who's listening to the song and sort of floating into the hall. It almost reminds me of sort of a Christmas Carol and the sort of ghost of Christmas past, sort of taking you into this space and you observe this scene and then you observe mm. the the fire and the rush and then you observe actually the you know the bodies of the children being taken out. But it has this very yeah. um sort of. Christmasy, we call it kind of um, vibe to Ghost it. of Christmas yeah, past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I am curious kind of how much the fact that the central brutality of this question of mm. the, the company thugs actually bar the doors uh, to create a stampede and create a tragedy. It is so at the heart of the Woody Guthrie song. And I wonder if the fact that that's in dispute maybe does get in the way of uh, an understanding of all the other sort of brutality that we that we certainly mm. know occurred and was documented. If Guthrie exaggerates this, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't doubt that he believed it. Um, right. I don't think there's a real negative to this because, again, the regular story, you know, what's not disputed, makes yeah. the company look so horrible and so heartless that. You know, and, and if it wasn't for the song or the powerful story that it tells, this would not really be a remembered incident. Yeah. Right. It's not like I mean, there yeah. were many disasters in American labor history that lead to mass death mm. that are completely yeah. forgotten. You know, it, it really takes a cultural moment to get them into it to to push for reform or to get them into our memory. Right. The only reason people remember the Triangle Fire is that it happened on the Lower East Side of New York on a nice Saturday afternoon where lots of rich people are around to see these workers die. You know, there had been the year before a major textile fire in Newark across the river, and it leads to nothing. Um, You know, like 25 workers die there because nobody saw it. You know, similarly, the kind of publicity that this story gets sort of puts it into American life, but really it's pretty forgotten too until Woody Guthrie writes that song. Mm -hmm. And so it's only because of that, that we remember this at all. And I think if he does exaggerate at one level, he he underplays it at the other level because he doesn't really get into the, the details of all of the strike. And so uh, I don't think it gets in the way. If anything, it it opens the door for us to be like, Oh, well maybe this didn't happen, but look at all this other stuff that did happen. I think mm-hmm. Triangle is such an important context for this as well, because in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, um, the doors had been blocked and locked yeah. in order to keep the workers inside, and it compounded the tragedy when a fire did break out. And so even though that didn't necessarily happen in the Calumet tragedy, it 
was a you know it, it represented something that capitalists had been doing to their workers um, in the case of Triangle, not in the case of a strike, but that workers were being exploited in ways that cost people their lives. Um, and there's something very evocative about that idea about the board the doors being blocked, which does actually mm-hmm. happen in several incidents. I mean, you know, the song's written in 1941, and the the, the working conditions had improved by then, but only very recently, right? And mm-hmm. and so, you know, people would have lived experiences of being locked inside of their workplace. So it's something that would be very evocative mm-hmm. to them. You know, if they were older than, say, you know, 25, 30 years old, they may well have experienced that. Yeah. And I, I also think that, you know, locale, region, all of that, the fact that plays a factor, you know, I think when we think of Michigan, we're prone to think of the cities, we're prone to think of like Detroit and, mm-hmm. and you know, big factory towns. We're not thinking of a upper, uh, the upper portion of Michigan. It's also a heavily immigrant community. I mean, 90% of the community is made up of immigrants. Um, and I think all of that plays into this idea of, um, who's expendable, who is disposable, how can we easily forget about, you know, people that, or places, people and places that we don't think matter as much. Um, So, you know, Triangle gets so big also because it's New York City. You know, I think that plays another role in how people pay attention. It's also interesting to think about the way that the story ends, I'm just thinking of this because of what you said about Detroit, Kelly, is that for many of these workers, the path to a better life happens outside of Calumet. There's this huge outflow of workers to places that pay better, places that are more unionized. It's it's very similar although for different reasons, to the process that happens to exploited black workers in the South, right? That they mm-hmm. move out. And that's Leave, the way yeah. they get uh, relief from at least some level of labor exploitation. Now, they'll face a lot of that in their new locations as well. But the better life often isn't happening because of reforms um, in Calumet. It's happening because people go somewhere else. Yeah, it's the push-pull factor. So, Eric, what on that point, I mean, what do you what does that say about the na- the success of the strike. I mean, there's I suppose there's one version of this where it says, "Wow, well, this tragedy took the spirits out of everyone and people fled." Um, and I suppose the other is this tragedy caused people to realize how awful the conditions were, and they they got out of there because there was nothing to gain. Yeah, I mean, in the short term, mm. um, you know, the strike is crushed, uh, like so many Western Federation of Minor strikes. I mean, and I think operating in a such isolated conditions. Uh, does matter, right? That that it's hard to get publicity for mm-hmm. whether you're talking about Calumet or you're talking about, you know, these Idaho mining towns where the WFM comes from or, or Western Colorado. It's very difficult to get that kind of attention. And so the strike is crushed. Workers do gain some, you know, in the short term, do gain some things out of it. Um, there is an eight hour day that comes out of it because the uh, because the company had had to offer that to the scab workers that had come in. Um, and so they do you know, create an hour a day, there's a small pay raise. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crushed. But I I do have to imagine that a lot of these, although I don't know, that a lot of these workers end up going to those cities in, in Detroit and Flint and, mm-hmm. and other places. You know, the U.S. enters World War One in 1917. You know, of course, we know that uh, that sparks the Great Migration out of the South. I, I have to imagine that that's also sparking significant migration out of these mining towns because, why would you stay there if you had other opportunities? Mm-hmm. And Calumet does not remain, you know, a major industrial center. 
um, for a, a long time. Um, and so, uh, you know, certainly World War One is going to open up economic possibilities for a lot of workers um, and they're going to find better, you know, better ways of, uh, of life. Uh, and there's, you know, and be already being in Michigan, it makes that a lot easier. I mean, I was just going to say this yeah. sort of reinforces the idea that why yelling fire into a crowded place <laughs> is not covered under the First Amendment. I mean, this is the deadly outcomes that can come from yelling that and be it um, a party or a movie theater or a school um, is just catastrophic. Well, there is a there is a funny story about that. So it, it's pretty widely believed that, you know, it's only a couple of years after this. Uh, that uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes issues that uh, opinion. And he is almost certainly referencing this event. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was uh, 1919 in the Shank case, uh, which he references this event. Uh, however, it's worth noting that when Holmes does this, he's actually upholding uh, the criminal conviction of a man who had distributed anti-draft leaflets during World War I. Uh, so Holmes is able to probably take this story and use it against radicals, saying that, you know, that, that the government had a right and responsibility even to oppress opposition during the war. So there's there's a kind mm. of a, two, a double edged sword on this one. Wow. Just to tie up some of the details here, the Italian Hall was demolished in 1984. The archway does remain, and every Christmas Eve there is a vigil, and 73 candles are lit on on the site. Um, that's a bit of the sort of legacy and remembrance. I'm curious, Eric, like within labor circles, does this story still remain? Do you see it connecting to current labor fights? Uh, I don't think people are sitting around spinning Woody Guthrie as much as they used to, but like, is this a story <laughs> that feels like it still is in the ether? I don't think it's one that we talk about a lot, um, uh, even even in labor history. I mean, I think that without the Guthrie song, again, um, it's something that uh, maybe scholars would know about, but it, it wouldn't play a major role in, in the kind of conversations I think that, that we have. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that it retains uh, quite a bit of relevance um, because, uh, you know, as we enter into what many people, and some people don't care for this um, phrasing, but called the New Gilded Age, where you see, again, mm -hmm. the rise of, of massive economic uh, inequality, decreased labor rights, and increasingly violent uh, America. You certainly see companies that are more than happy to exploit workers to the extent, uh, to the point of death. Um, certainly in the COVID era, uh, we saw that with frontline workers. Uh, but the other part of mm -hmm. this um, is that, you know, this kind of geographical issue that, you know, makes it difficult to get that kind of attention out of a place like Calumet versus in New York is a huge part of our of our global economic system today that you know the same companies you know mining companies textiles uh, all of these different globalized companies I mean the same things are happening uh, to supply us with goods except that instead of now of Calumet they're happening in Bangladesh they're happening in Sri Lanka and Cambodia mm. and they're happening in the mines in in Africa right you know the the mines for um, you know the uh, the rare earths that go into electronics that are in places like the Congo uh, that are a part of supply chains now that are conveniently forget about when we go and buy our iPhones. And, you know, so the system is in many ways not changed at all uh, from the kind of exploitation that took place in, 19, in 1913 in Michigan, except that it just takes place in the Congo. Uh, and so, you know, whereas a labor system developed in the 30s and 40s that began to limit some of this exploitation because it opened up the world to labor organizing and you saw successful unionization, including in Calumet, 
we, we've lost that thread because it's gone global. And so I think that the real relevance is, is that, you know, we have to understand when workers are dying today, we have to learn those stories and we have to support, I think, a system of corporate accountability that would require the control over supply chains and so that there can be legal accountability when people die uh, making our products. And, and that's something that we're a long ways from. But I think, you know, that's that's a lot of the lesson that we can learn from situations like Calumet is that the same thing happens today globally. You have to hold corporations accountable on that. Hmm. Well said. Uh, all right. We will leave it there. Uh, Eric Loomis, Associate Professor of History at the University of Rhode Island. The book is A History of America in Ten Strikes. And I will also say on Twitter, you're very good. You do these great long threads often around anniversaries, but uh, people should find your work there as well. Thank you for doing this. And anything else you want to you want to plug as you say goodbye? Uh, no, not really. I just wanted to uh, uh, say thank you all for doing such an awesome podcast. Um, I really look forward to checking out uh, future episodes of this. Um, I think it's, you know, there's such a huge need for historians to engage in uh, some of the new media. Uh, and uh, you guys are just doing doing a super job on that. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Nicole Hammer, thanks to you. Thanks, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Felbin. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Kaula Nakua helps with transcripts. Julie Shapiro is executive producer for Radiotopia. Get in touch with us if you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show. You can email us, thisdaypod at gmail.com, or you can find a form at thisdaypod.com, where you can also get our full archives, transcripts, and learn lots more about the show. Follow us on social at thisdaypod on Instagram and Twitter, where we are posting stuff each and every day. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. Take a trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the copper country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs Singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see And watch the kids dance round the big Christmas tree You ask about work and you ask about pay They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day Working their copper claim, risking their lives So it's fun to spend Christmas with children and wives There's talking and laughing and songs in the air And the spirit of Christmas is there everywhere Before you know it, you're friends with us all And you're dancing around around in the hall Well a little girl sits down by the Christmas tree lights to play the piano so you gotta keep quiet Hear all this fun you would not realize that the copper 
copper ball stug men are milling outside. The copper ball stugs stuck their heads in the door. One of them yelled and he screamed, there's a fire. A lady, she hollered, there's no such a thing. Keep on with your party, there's no such a thing. A few people rushed and there's only a few. It's just the thugs and the scabs fooling you. A man grabbed his daughter and he carried her down. But the thugs held the door and he could not get out. And then others followed a hundred or more. But most everybody remained on the floor. The gun thugs, they laughed at their murderous joke while the children were smothered on the stairs by the door. Such a terrible sight I never did see. We carried our children back up to their tree. The scabs outside still laughed at their spree. And the children that died, there was 73. The piano played a slow funeral tune. And the town is lit up by a cold Christmas moon. The parents, they cried, and the miners, they moaned. See what your greed for money has done. Support for this day in esoteric political history comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you'll need to join the millions of others who have switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash this day. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash this day. Odoo, modern management made simple. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia. 